Uh, good morning, everyone. If you can please get seated so that we start. Perfect. Thank you very much. Good morning again. I'm Panos Katsambas. I'm a partner in the funds and private equity group in, uh, at Reed Smith in the London office. And it is my pleasure to moderate this panel once again. Um, just by looking at some of the panelists here, um, I think it is fair to say that uh, private equity in shipping has been a, a long-standing participant and still very much interested in opportunities in the space, and we'll hear more about that later on. But uh, um, some of the panelists on my right are, have been consistent um, participants in this conference, so I think that speaks uh, on its own merit. Um, I think today, when looking back over the last uh, 10 years, private equity takes a much broader um, part in the space from the traditional equity investment in a shipping company, and we see uh, funds having replaced uh, financial institutions in providing financing, uh, assisting uh, shipping companies structuring their debt, um, um, acquiring debt from uh, financial institutions looking to exit the market um, and make new equity investments, uh, whether by way of new money or by way of um, uh, exiting existing private opportunities in exchange for uh, shares in publicly listed companies. Uh, we'll touch upon the trends in the market and uh, what type of transactions are of interest, but before we get into the, the more nitty-gritty, I'd like to ask uh, my panelists to briefly introduce themselves. Kevin O'Hara from AMA Capital Partners in New York. Andy Dacey from J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Uh, Paolo Almeida from Tufton Oceanic. Perfect. And I'd like to start, Paolo, um, uh, actually with um, every, every one of you and just a brief commentary about the current trends you see and what type of transactions are of uh, particular interest, uh, if at all, at this uh, uh, at this current timing. Yeah. Um, you may have heard um, Axel from the London Stock Exchange, who was one of the first uh, speakers this morning. He mentioned that uh, Tufton, uh, we launched a listed fund about 18 months ago. As he said, it's about $225 million, uh, of market cap. Um, and it's been trading at a premium to NAV. And we had about a 10% unlevered return last year, which um, our investors are quite happy with. In addition to the listed fund, which has a mixed portfolio of bulk uh, product tankers, one gas tanker, some container ships, uh, and some MPPs, we have three private funds that we invested in uh, between 2013 and 2017 or so, which have about a billion dollars uh, of ships all unlevered. So all of those ships that I just talked about are unlevered, which is a key part of our strategy. And those as well are mixed fleets. So we're seeing opportunities uh, across the sectors. We tend to fix in two to five year charters on our vessels. We tend not to have leverage. We tend to, we are targeting and have produced pretty steady, moderate returns. We're trying to produce returns that are about twice that of unlevered real estate, which is what our investors are looking for without much more risk than real estate. So in, in terms of JP Morgan, we've been investing in the space for the last 10 years. Uh, we have primarily focused on acquiring vessels. Uh, for a time, we had some relationships with existing shipping companies where we did joint ventures. Uh, I would say that in the last seven years, uh, 
we pursued a more 100% owned strategy. I, I think that private equity, generally speaking, probably has seen, well, what I've seen at least is them, private equity moving more towards the debt side, and that seems to be the trend over the last couple of years. At least that's been more the majority of the PE activity that we've seen. Um, we, we don't do debt. Uh, that's not to mean that debt isn't attractive. I, I just think it's two different types of investment strategies. Uh, from a transaction perspective, uh, like Paolo, we believe that there are opportunities in the asset owning space, and, and we see them. I think certainly decisions have to be taken as to how long you're going to time charter your vessels, are you going to pursue a spot strategy, certainly opportunities in both. Uh, I think if anything, the shipping industry right now is going through a bit of a transition with regard to, uh, was, as Panos mentioned, not a lot of banks are lending. Let's say private equity has stepped into that breach. Uh, the cost of that capital is certainly a lot higher. Uh, and I think one of the things that I've often said is, as an industry, we have to think more about what the sort of reasonable levels of returns are for this business. And, and from my perspective, high single digits is, is what I think is reasonable with modest leverage, in some cases no leverage. So uh, you know, high 15, double digit, 20 type of 20 percent type returns I think is, 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 is achievable, but it's, it's the black swan rather than the, the white geese uh, floating around in Green Park. So anyway. Kevin, a bit of a perspective from the investment banking side. Yeah, sure. Uh, for AMA, we've seen the industry, uh, the private equity side, uh, much more from the restructuring standpoint over the last few years, um, both as initial investors who end up in restructurings or investors in distressed debt um, going through the restructuring process, having, having bought out um, banks that had sold at a discount. Uh, I think what we've really seen over the last couple of years is a little bit to what Andy was speaking towards much less a uh, classic long play and more towards structured deals, more, more towards secured lending, um, where you'll put back leverage on it. So I think, I think people have been a bit burned um, from some of the long plays where, the, where they expected the market to recover and it never did, uh, and now are looking at deals where they can get a, a high single-digit return uh, with a little bit more of a um, charter, co charter coverage, strong, strong uh, asset coverage on that, on that, uh, on those loans, and put the back leverage on it to get to where they need to be in, in terms of a mid to high teens on a on a total return basis. Looking at the at the title of our panel here, it says uh, whether private equity is an opportunistic short term or a strategic long term investment in shipping. I think we've answered that in the and it's obvious that that um, the industry is here as a long term investor. But at the same time, the question is. It, it, does P drive industry consolidation? And, and while in other sectors where private equity um, is investing, we've seen uh, a lot more examples of consolidation as part of the traditional uh, investing play. You know, with the exception of some transactions that one can say um, fall within this sort of consolidation theme, private equity hasn't been able to spearhead a consolidation in the shipping industry. What do you guys think is the biggest obstacle in, in achieving that? And, and is that, should that be something um, that uh, private equity investors should strive or attempt to do? Andy? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if consolidation necessarily is a stated goal that should be pursued. What, what, I, what I think is happening is there's a natural consolidation happening only because the amount of capital in the industry is is reduced, and so we've seen 
a bifurcation between the, the higher priced debt that's available from some private equity shops, which perhaps tends to move towards older vessels or uh, situations where the company, for whatever reason, can't access traditional bank financing. The, the traditional banks have now moved much more towards a, a corporate style financing where they want corporate guarantees, they want big balance sheets that typically will follow much more low leverage. They're sensitive to some of the technological changes that are happening in the industry. Uh, they're looking for longer term coverage or an embedded team that has a proven track record of trading. Uh, and I think that this, this capital uh, wh whether it's PE or banks in general, the, the reduction of capital in the industry is by definition going to spur a consolidation. So maybe the PE shops haven't achieved that, but I do think the industry is, is moving in that direction. And if you look at the environment that we're in, it's historically been the case where you've seen a lot of uh, high leveraged uh, capital available that's allowed markets to create an asset play environment where people come in and out and borrow lots of money and it pushes asset values up. I don't see that today, so I don't think there's necessarily so many opportunities to buy distressed assets and expect for the market to improve and sell them at a high value. I think you have to look at an asset as a depreciating asset and take a very sober and conservative view as to where that asset's going to be in five or 10 or 15 years time. Uh, so. I think the, the industry is now becoming much more of, a, of an earnings market as opposed to an asset play market, and I think that in and of itself will, will spur consolidation. Hello, you have thoughts? Yeah, I guess um, thoughts on consolidation. Um, I guess in, in general, there's probably three reasons to pursue M&A um, in, in uh, any industry. Like Andy, I stopped being an investment banker 10 or 12 years ago. But we can play investment banker for a little while and then let uh, Kevin chip in. So if we look at some aspects, um, synergies is one. I think synergies are pretty close to zero in shipping. If you have two well-run dry bulk companies um, that have 30 or 40 ships each, are you going to get much synergies either in revenues or costs from putting them together and uh, having 80 ships? very unlikely that that's uh, material. Cost of capital, um, Andy's um, already addressed. Banks are much moving towards just lending to corporates and listed companies as opposed to private companies, so bigger, bigger is better in that way. <clears throat> I think the driver, though, of, of the consolidation that we've seen driven by private equity is liquidity of shares. The bigger the market cap, all else equal, um, the more liquidity uh, there should be, and um, these are private equity investors that are very different from what J.P. Morgan or Tufton do in that um, they uh, do have three to five year horizons, whereas we tend to have more like 10 year horizons uh, and are long term committed to shipping. They need to get out at some stage. If they need to get out at some stage, they need to have a larger listed company where there is some liquidity so that um, they can um, exit those investments in a reasonably orderly fashion. Kevin? Yeah, I th for, for commodity shipping, I think the consolidation idea has been a bit of a white whale for the last two or three hundred years. Um, we'll see if it continues. Uh, it, but it's very hard to consolidate an industry where someone can, like four people up on this, on this panel, can go out and raise money and, and, and order new ships. Um, but it does get back to the capital discipline that's been referenced here a few times, whereas the bank debt is not as available. Um, that idea of somebody just starting up something new and, and building 20 ships is less likely these days. Um, 
from my perspective, the, the, the opportunistic, uh, the opportunity for, for consolidation really comes down to building more, um, building companies that can sustain themselves through the cycles, have better availability, uh, better access to the capital markets, um, rather than the idea of having a kind of market power in, in Dribble, for instance, because that, to me, would, would never really happen. Um, so having that balance sheet where you can uh, get the best financing out there, get the money you need when you need to replace your, your, your tonnage or when you want to do an acquisition, use your shares as currency, those are the types of things that would, in my mind, lead to a, a real reason for consolidation. And, and you mentioned um, at the end using your shares as currency. In the last couple of years, we've seen a few of the listed companies trying to do that and acquire fleets uh, by, by offering um, shares um, consideration. Is that something that we uh, should be seeing more? Is that something that the listed companies should be evaluating in more detail, try to grow through through transactions like that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, easier said than done when, you're, when your shares are trading at a discount to NAV, but I think what you've seen, in, at least in some sectors, those, um, those discounts have shrunk over the last uh, few months. And I think once you start seeing somebody trading near or above any of you, it becomes a lot more, a lot easier to do that. But that kind of consolidation play when you have multiple tri-bulk or product tanker or tanker companies that really look the same in the end of the day, um, to put them together in a big, bigger vehicle through those share transactions, I think makes a lot of sense. Let me just add to that. I, I think yeah, the challenge, uh, I think merging two public companies makes a lot of sense if you can find a relative pricing mechanism that gives both sides comfort, but when you're uh, faced with potentially taking uh, privately owned vessels and contributing them into a public company and taking shares in exchange, then I think given the malaise that we see in the publicly traded environment for shipping, you're, you're faced as the owner of those assets with a very uh, difficult uh, exit proposition and how long will it take you to get out? Will you get out at a good price? And are you sacrificing any earnings that you're achieving if that public company is not a dividend payer? Uh, then you're essentially abandoning your asset and, and having to dig your way out of that public company over time. So that's been one of the issues that I've seen out there in terms of private ships going into public entities. So, so effectively, you know, kind of when you were doing some of the initial joint ventures between shipping uh, groups and, and private equity, as you looked ahead five years perhaps, um, a, a listing was one of the potential exit opportunities. Do I take it with your comment that sort of today, in today's environment, as a private equity investor, exiting through the, the, the public markets is not really uh, much of an option. I mean, just to respond to that, as, as, as Paolo mentioned, and at JP Morgan, we, we, we take a much more longer-term approach. So our view is if we own the assets for their entire useful life, that's fine, and we underwrite on that basis. And we don't have any uh, mandated exit uh, targets. So, um, but but for some PE firms and closed-ended funds, they do have to get out. So that becomes a bit more of a challenge. Paolo, your thoughts on that? And yeah, we, we've um, we've had some involvement in um, uh, public companies or potential public uh, exit uh, strategies over the years. I think that if a deal um, is well structured. Um, and it's ready for the markets, and the markets are ready for it at the same time, which has not really come together very many times in the past 10 years, then yes, um, public exits are feasible. Are they something that you should include in your analysis when you look at an expectation of return? 
uh, absolutely not. The past 10 years or nine years show that it's very, very difficult to, to um, have a shipping IPO. Very, very few have happened, uh, especially uh, ones where there is a significant element of uh, initial sponsors exiting as opposed to just new money uh, being raised. But it's public knowledge we were involved in Hafnia together with our friends at Blackstone um, through a large number of transactions over a few years. Um, we've now turned that into a much smaller stake in the new Hafnia, which has the Soman Powell family via BW as its largest shareholder. That, that went um, reasonably well. Um, but it was a lot of hard work over the years. And um, the return, I think, would we, I would say was only decent as opposed to fantastic. Certainly not 15%, but we're reasonably happy with it. Let me switch gears a bit. And Kevin, um, we've witnessed also in the last few years, again, not the traditional asset play, but a lot of the funds uh, uh, investing, neither acquiring, not performing loan portfolios and then participating in restructurings of the shipping companies or more directly buying debt and, and uh, forcing restructurings. And we've witnessed a lot of the listed and private companies affect um, uh, broad range debt restructurings. What is, you know, the lessons we've learned and, and, and where the um, situation is today in terms of uh, opportunities from the more distressed restructuring type approach in the space? For the, for the funds that are requiring the non-performing loans, um, there's an interesting aspect there, other than the obvious liquidity it's provided to the banks, um, because for some of these portfolios, I don't know where else you would be able to sell those uh, if private equity hadn't stepped up to the plate. Um, but also, these portfolios were a bit, in my mind, full of stranded shipping companies. Um, there may have been some investments that were debt investments that were KG investments that were so far underwater they never were going to come back. Um, but there were also uh, performing shipping companies in there where you had the bank that's exi exiting the industry um, that was probably a relationship for a long time. They no longer had somebody to go to uh, to finance or to grow with. So now you have a private equity player who has seen the, the portfolio from the inside, has seen the bad parts, but also sees the good parts where they can say, okay, this, this one here is actually performing, and well, let's stick with them and put some more money with them longer term. And, and you guys, have, have there been any opportunities from that sort of debt restructuring um, space in terms of uh, um, enabling you to, to, to buy assets that uh, otherwise would normally come in the market? As, as I said earlier, uh, Manos, we, we don't do the debt side, and like, I don't think it's necessarily a bad place to be or a good place to be. It's just it's a particular skill set. So. Uh, I think there's been plenty of opportunities to restructure and, and get to the assets, and uh, I think people have done okay. No, and more from the opportunity to acquire the asset directly as opposed to the debt, like have, have those transactions spurred more assets, um, more asset opportunities. I mean, my, my two cents on that is that one of the, I think if you have a bilateral loan, if you step into that and you become the replacement entity for the bank that you've bought the loan from and, and there's not a syndicate in place, then those are probably the best opportunities to go and actually uh, acquire the asset, but you have to go through a fairly lengthy legal process and arrest the asset and go to auction and all of that. Um, if, if you get into a syndicate, and that's always been where we've had a concern, is you may have uh, different views from the syndicate members and you might buy, might buy one syndicate member's position, but the other syndicate members may have 
still, still be banks that look to long-term relationships and may not want to act as, as aggressively as perhaps the private equity side would. So these are just some of the concerns that we've seen, at least, in, in trying to execute asset acquisitions through debt. So uh, like Andy at Tufton, we, we don't buy uh, loans. We have looked um, at buying um, sub-performing loans uh, recently, uh, but we have not been active in it. What we have done, however, is we've, we've acquired a, quite a lot of assets from banks as asset transactions. So we don't buy the loan, but we buy the asset. Probably at least half of the ships that we've acquired over the past two or three years were either sold um, by a bank directly or with a bank somehow in the background, for example, with KGs um, actually doing the selling. The other opportunity that arises more recently than that, so that's you know the past three or four years, is a lot of the U.S. Uh, credit investors who have bought large portfolios from um, uh, some of these banks who now um, are doing the same calculus, um, but probably act a, a little bit more quickly and proactively in executing on that calculus of what in this portfolio of loans do I want to keep for a few years, what do I want to convert to equity because I think there's upside in these assets, and what do I just want to sell quite quickly, whether as a loan or as an asset, just to de-risk the portfolio a bit and maximize the IRR. So there have been, um, it's not an area that where we have transacted yet, but we have uh, looked at quite a few opportunities from these U.S. credit investors who own ex, primarily German uh, loan portfolios, who then look to transact the same way that banks have in the past. Excellent. And, and one last question around the topic of restructuring is what do we expect in the next couple of years in the space, Kevin? Are, are there more companies that will need to find ways to restructure the debt? Uh, I, I certainly think there is. It's it's kind of a, a classic issue for the for the shipping industry in general. I, I think offshore is is in much worse shape. Um, we just haven't seen the assets, uh, the, the the amount of assets reduce at all. We had we've had some good examples of, of fleets of as, of offshore assets be sold. Um, some of them 20 years or more. And, and when when the, when the vessels go up for sale, none of them go for scrap. Um, and then you look at the, the overall picture, whether it's rigs or, or supply vessels or, or, or more sophisticated offshore vessels, um, you just don't see the level of scrapping that you do on, on the shipping side. So I think first and foremost, you're going to see offshore um, struggle for the next couple of years because of that. Uh, but then you're also going to ha always have subsectors within shipping that, that, that go through their own issues as well. Um, let me switch gears a bit and, and, and um, touch upon uh, kind of indirect concerns, let's say, that may be affecting or not your, your um, views and, and investment opportunities. We've witnessed a lot in the last, um, in, in the very near uh, recent future, political tensions, trade wars, and, and uh, a certain extent, um, some of those matters escalating to situations with um, governments pushing other governments to arrest vessels, uh, potentially impacting um, uh, the routes that vessels um, uh, sail through and all, and all that. Um, likewise, we have a big uh, push with the IMO regulation on environmental compliance and all that. And from, from the standpoint of um, private equity investors, how much do these um, parameters, environmental issues, risk uh, from potential exposure by owning these assets directly 
um, or being caught um, into a situation um, on, on whether it's sanctions or, or political tension. How much do these parameters affect your um, investment process and decision making? Uh, Pablo, you want um, I think it's fair to say that um, most, um, most, in, uh, most of our investors tend to have a, a front office and a middle um, uh, or back office. And the things around sanctions, uh, basic compliance, uh, insurance, war risk, these sorts of things, those tend to be more of sort of middle office um, issues. So the operational people, the risk people, um, are um, the ones that are concerned about that. And luckily with, luckily with them, we get more airtime. So when they come for a meeting, it's a two or three hour meeting as opposed to a 45 minute meeting, so we can go through um, all of those issues. Um, environmental, um, however, over the past couple of years has become a very, very significant front office issue. Um, I was at the ABS seminar where Andy was speaking yesterday together with Chris uh, Vernicki from ABS and, if, and uh, uh, another owner and another charterer uh, about this, so it won't be come to, uh, as a surprise to, to many in here, but environmental uh, issues um, are very, very significant to the sort of investors that we have, which are often European uh, pension funds or people who manage money for smaller uh, European pension funds. So uh, as uh, JP Morgan um, is affiliated with the Poseidon Principles, what we did at Tufton last year is we became a signatory to the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment, um, which is uh, one of the major ESG uh, frameworks for institutional investors. And of course, we're focusing on the environmental um, uh, aspects of that. We're doing things like uh, limiting the amount of chartering that we do with companies that trade a lot of coal. So we, we will favor agricultural companies as charterers over companies that carry a lot of coal. We're doing a lot of work on increasing fuel efficiency of the current fleet. So we spend some money uh, on dry dockings, on propeller modifications, better paint, etc. Um, and the best thing about all this is that it's actually very accretive to an investment. So environmental used to be about risk mitigation. Um, there was a talk earlier today about stranded assets. You don't want to buy a ship that is obsolete when it's 15 years old because it uh, produces a lot of emissions, uh, et cetera. Um, that's been a key aspect of what we do for many years. We never bought ships with high fuel consumption because of that impairment risk. But charterers today are now much more willing to pay more on a daily rate for a ship that has less consumption than a benchmark vessel. So if we can make a couple of hundred thousand dollars of spend in a dry dock that saves two tons or three tons of fuel a day and we get five to, uh, 500 to $1,000 per day per ship, that's a pretty short payback period. So it's actually the best of both worlds. It's reducing emissions and it's also accretive uh, to our investment. Andy, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I might just sort of further underscore what Paula was saying about the ESG side of things. And those of you who have heard me speak before, I've, I've sort of been on this bandwagon now for the last couple of years, or last year, let's say, uh, 
but but everything that Paula was saying is is alive and well in the global investor universe. So institutional investors, whether they be insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, more so in Europe, but uh, certainly catching up in the U.S. and and I think probably Asia is the in third place, but I think they'll come around as well. Uh, that um, there's no investor out there that's not making a decision without thinking about the ESG. Uh, status of the companies that they're investing in. And, and you see this happening across the board uh, in, a, in, a, in a very broad way beyond shipping. Morgan Stanley Composite Index now has an ESG coefficient for the companies that make up that index. So if you're not thinking about this, then I think it becomes a lot more difficult to articulate what your strategy is to investors that are thinking about it. And, and it can certainly uh, include some of the things Paolo mentioned, and I think there's a lot of good things that are happening in shipping, but there's also things that are less ESG favorable. Uh, and it's not just environment, it's, it's the social side of things, it's working with your, your crew and your constituents to make sure that you're, you're working with them in a very transparent and open way. Uh, and so really bringing shipping out of the darkness where maybe it's been less so, but if you go back 30, 40 years, it was not very transparent and, and it just needs to be more so. And the other thing that I think is connected to this is, is the next step of technological change. We saw eco engines having an impact during the last 10 years. I think the big question now that everybody is struggling with is what's the next propulsion system? Uh, and it's, that's the E part of the ESG. And are we going to find ourselves sticking with LNG? Are we going to go to hydrogen? Are we going to go to ammonia? Are we going to go to something different? Are we going to be able to find a way to produce synthetic fuels? What are the implications for that in terms of the value of vessels you buy today? You buy a ship for 25 years. If all of a sudden there's a technological change that accelerates the obsolescence of the existing ships, then you have to start radically rethinking how you underwrite the useful life of assets. And it's not necessarily something that's very clear uh, because each one of these propulsion opportunities has issues, right? Ammonia. If you inhale, it will kill you. Uh, hydrogen needs uh, a lot of containment. Uh, you know, so there's lots of questions out there. Um, and uh, uh, these are things that we think about. And obviously for the, the, the ship owners audience uh, uh, here, I mean, take notice of the things that the investors and how they approach uh, issues and the issues they have to deal with their investors in terms of the underlying investments and the compliance with applicable regulations and so forth. Um, I see a lot of zeros in front of me on the time remaining. Um, Kevin, any final remarks? I, you know, Paulo alluded to the coal, um, which I, I, a very small, uh, quick anecdote, which I find instructive. The AMA had an investment in rail cars, and uh, a very small part of that portfolio was were coal cars. And literally overnight, we went from having them on lease to a, a major utility in the U.S. to them handing them back, saying, "No thanks, we're done with coal." Um, it's a bit extreme. I don't think it'll happen that quickly on a global scale, but it'll certainly be that dynamic is coming into play. Do we have any time for any questions? No. Okay. Well, that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you.